Thank you, Grace, for that reading this morning. Uh, thank you, band, for leading us. By the way, I was talking with Nathan this week. Uh, you know, if you are a musician or a vocalist, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new folks to join that team. And if you're ready to serve in person and looking for a space, uh, we'd love for you to visit us on the web. We've got lots of spots for you, greeting, uh, set up and pack up, lots of ways that you can get, get involved. Well, uh, just a quick question. Let's start with this. How many of you have ever tried to learn a second language or a foreign language? Anyone try to learn? All right. Yeah, yeah. And, and no, speaking Valley Girl does not count as a foreign language, but uh, at least where I came from, it kind of did. You know, if you've ever tried to speak a foreign language or a second language, you know just how challenging that can be, isn't it? It's, it's not easy. And at times it can be very, very confusing. And here's part of the reason why. Languages don't always work in a one-to-one, word-for-word way. Sometimes there are phrases or idioms, sayings in one language that if you translate them literally, they just do not work in the other language. And Google Translate will not help you there. <laughs> I was thinking about a time I faced this. Uh, it was a number of years ago. I got to travel to Mongolia. And uh, anybody speak Mongolian? Okay, then uh, here we go. So I got to travel to Mongolia with a couple other leaders, and we were exploring a church planting partnership with the church in Mongolia. Amazing, y'all. The church in Mongolia, like as in China, is among some of the fastest growing churches in the world today. Just amazing to see the gospel work there. But we were traveling around the rural countryside, uh, and most Mongolians live in a dwelling that they call a ger, or what we would call a yurt. It looks something like this. It's a single tent dwelling that's easily collapsible so they can move wherever the herd needs to move, right? And so we got to visit with the pastor of this local church, one of the families in his congregation. So I have a photo here of us inside the gare, and we are being treated to the traditional drink of hospitality in Mongolia, which is known as fermented mare's milk. Yes, we're going to have some for communion next week. No, I'm kidding. Fermented mare's milk is, is like the honorary drink. And so we go in there, and, and of course, I have to drink it. I'm going to be a good guest, so I pray the missionary prayer. God, if I get this down, you keep it down, right? You, you probably know that one. Well, it was really interesting. We really were uh, just amazed to see uh, life there. And it was interesting. The pastor, who speaks both English and Mongolian, periodically got up. In fact, he did this two times. He came over and said to us in English, I'm going to go outside and check on the horses. Now, this was puzzling to me because we didn't have any horses. Uh, in fact, we had actually ridden there in an SUV. And so I started to get a little bit nervous. I thought, like, did the SUV leave? Are we going to get on horseback for the next leg of our journey? So when he came back the second time, I said, I don't understand what you mean. You're going outside to check on the horses. And, and he said, well, after his face turned red and he got really embarrassed, he said, Aaron, in, in Mongolia, because everyone lives in a single room dwelling, it's not considered polite to announce that you're going outside to do your business, right? <laughs> So you say, I'm going to go outside and check on the horses. And everybody knows what you mean in Mongolian. So I thought, this is really cool. I like how this works. So when I came back home uh, at that time, Los Angeles, uh, I was in a work staff meeting, and I thought I would try this. So I stood up, and I announced to everybody, I'm going to go outside and check on the horses. It did not work so well at home. Yeah. But, but you get the idea, right? Languages can be confusing. They, they can be troublesome. They know it's not always plain what they mean. Our story today has language as the backdrop to its story. It, more specifically, it is the origin of a diversity of languages that sets the stage for so much that's happening in this story. And it might be tempting to read this story from Genesis 11 
as just a history, an etiology is what, well, academics would call it, uh, an explanation for where languages come from. But it's actually doing so much more than that. In fact, what I want to lay out today is that the point of this story is not really about how we got all these different languages. The story is trying to say something about the language of the human heart. Now, this is a complicated story. It's a very, very ancient story in Genesis. And we as a church believe that the Word of God, every bit of God's Word is God-inspired, Spirit-breathed, and is the authority for our life of faith. So, so, here we go. What does this very strange and odd story about a tower in Babylon have to say to us about faith? Got it? That's where we're going today. Now, it's going to be, it's, we're going to do some heavy Bible lifting here. So you guys, middle schoolers, help mom and dad along. Okay, they're going to need some helps today. Uh, but here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this story in three ways. I'm going to talk first about the setting. Where is this story happening and why is that significant? Secondly, the problem. What's the problem it's addressing? And then thirdly, God's surprising solution. Not unlike last week, if you were with us, we're in a year-long series called The Whole Story. Last week, we talked about Noah and the flood. And you'll remember last week, we had the PPP plan. Not the paycheck one, but the other one we had, right? We had the problem, God's plan, and the promise. Today, similar flow, the setting, the problem, and God's surprising solution. All right, so let's jump in. Middle schoolers, help your parents. First of all, let's, the setting, uh, opening verses of Genesis 11, give us the stage. They set the stage. Let me read this to you. Now the whole world, or some of your translations might say the whole land, had one language and a common speech, a common lip. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Okay, Interesting. What's all that about? Well, if you're like me, you might just want to breeze past all that, but there's a lot packed in here. Let me unpack this. The picture that we have here is that after Noah and his family leave the ark, they plant a garden. Remember, we talked about that last week. And eventually, Noah's descendants begin to multiply and spread out. And at first, this seems like a good thing, right? Isn't this what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply, right? make babies and travel. That sounds like fun to me, right? Let's say, hey, let's do that. So it seems like that's what they're doing here. But, but we see some clues that there's a lot more underneath the surface. In fact, we see the first of many contrasts that we're going to see in this story. And the first contrast is the contrast between east and west. You see, east in the Old Testament is a symbol of rebellion against God, of turning away from God, right? Think about this. Adam and Eve, when they leave, they're kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of the garden to the east, east of Eden, right? Then Cain, their son, kills his brother, and then he goes even further east, and we're told he builds a city. Okay, a lot of mystery there. We won't get into that today. Then Noah and his descendants take it even further, going further east. You get the picture? In fact, we don't go west until we get to a guy in the very next chapter named Abraham, whom God is going to call to leave the east and go west to the promised land. East is a symbol of rebellion against God. West is a symbol of faithfulness and trusting God, which is why Eastern Carolina barbecue sauce is sinful and vinegary, and Western Carolina sauce is holy and sweet. Do you see that? Right? All right, if you, you learned something today at church, there we go. Now, the second clue in this, I really upset some of y'all with that one, didn't I? So I, there might be some marriage counseling needed after the service today. <laughs> the, 
The second clue is this place, this Valley of Shinar, as it's called. Shinar is known for two things by the original audience. We have to kind of study. They would have known what Shinar was. Shinar is known first as a land of idol worship. Uh, now, we don't talk about idols all that often, but, but in Shinar, idols, gods would have been worshipped. Uh, there would be tall monuments built to these foreign gods. Uh, there would be these pyramids, these aserots. Uh, I've shown you pictures of these in previous sermons that you would ascend to the top of because the gods were way up there. And if you climbed all the way to the top and you made just the right sacrifices and you shouted loud enough and danced the magic jig, then maybe just maybe God would listen to you, right? And so people would go and they would sacrifice to these idols. And Shinar was known for that. But Shinar was also known for a second thing. Shinar is known as the birthplace of Babylon. Now, if you're new to the Bible, don't worry. This year, we're going to talk a lot about Babylon. Because Babylon, from beginning to end in the Bible, is the arch nemesis, the the evil foe of God's people. In fact, Babylon, which will be led by King Nebuchadnezzar, and you remember whenever at Lake Forest we say Nebuchadnezzar, what do we do? We boo. That's right. We boo and hiss because Nebuchadnezzar, he's the bad guy, right? Babylon's are the Israelites' foe. And Shinar is the birthplace of the Babylonians. Ooh, we feel on the stage set here? Something's about to happen. We're getting introduced to these characters. Now, all of this is just set up for what comes next. We got the setting. Middle scores, mom and dad tracking along with us. All right, so secondly, we've covered the study. Now let's get to the problem. Verses three and four, let me read this to you. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, it's here that we come to our next set of contrasts. So we saw east and west. Now we see another contrast, bricks and stones. What's this all about? Well, there's been a lot that you could make of this and some kind of new technology, but I don't actually think that's what's happening here. Bricks were not necessarily any better than stones. In fact, the contrast here seems to be that of what is possible by human hands and what is only possible by God's hands. Who is it that makes bricks? Humans. Who is it that makes stones? God. Interesting. So they're saying, we're not going to build with God's materials. We're going to build for ourselves with our materials. And we're not going to use the mortar and stones. We're going to use tar and bricks. You see a little bit of the contrast happening here? What is it they set out to do? Well, they set out to do three things. They set out to build a city. Interesting, okay. They want a tower that reaches to the heavens. Boy, that sounds like one of those idol towers, doesn't it? And they want to make a name for themselves. One biblical scholar uh, I read points out that these three things are actually symbols of the very things that every human being desires. Matt Carter writes that the city the first thing they want, represents our need to belong, our need to have someone, some group that we are a part of. And isn't that that what we want too? I I mean, on some basic level, don't we all want to belong somewhere, to be known? This is what I think can make middle school so difficult. I was talking with a mom this week. Do you all remember how hard middle school was? Middle school is tough, isn't it? 
Because you're trying to find your peeps. Where's my tribe? Where's my crew? Who are the folks that are going to have my back? Who are the folks who are going to accept me as I am? Where is it that I'm going to belong? And middle schoolers, let me clue you in. Your parents still struggle with this question too. It's a lifelong question. Who are my people? Where do I fit in? To whom do I belong? Metcar says that it's not just that need to belong. We see this in the very next thing as well, that the tower is a symbol for our desire for security, for security. I was thinking about some examples of the ways that we seek security in our world today. I was looking up some funny things that you can get insurance for, right? This is just baffling to me. Did you know you can get insurance for your wedding in case the other person doesn't show up? No, true story. Like, you can purchase wedding insurance. If the other person bails, you, you've got a policy to cover your wedding. You, there's somebody who insured his mustache. I'm not sure what might happen to that mustache, but he insured it for a policy of $320,000. That's how much his mustache was worth. Uh, but the most interesting to me was you can get insurance for alien abduction. Uh, $118 a month will get you a $10 million policy in case... In case you are ever abducted by aliens, your family will get $10 million. If, if you can prove that the aliens ate your body, it actually is three times that. I, I don't know how you file that claim. Good, good luck with that. But, um, but you know, it's funny how much we desire security, right? Safety. Think about all the things you do in your life to try and find safety and security. The tower for these ancient Babylonians was a sign of security. It was a place where they could spot enemies coming. It was a place they could retreat to in defense. It was what they trusted in to keep them safe. But the third thing that Matt Carter points out is that we see here our longing for significance. Perhaps most striking of all of the things that they said they want, these ancient Babylonians said, we want to make a name for ourselves. Can you imagine a people so obsessed with their name and their reputation? I mean, it almost seems foreign, doesn't it? Not really. We are all consumed by that. We all want our lives to count for something. We all want our lives to matter. The problem is that we look to these things to give us what only God can give. Look at how this problem immerses itself. It's, these are not bad things to want, right? It's not bad to want these things. But look at how the problem emerges here in verse 4. They say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. You see, the problem is not the desire for these things. The problem is that the human heart is a little tower-building factory. We long for belonging. We long for security. We long for significance. But we build these little towers to tr try and provide those things for ourselves. Towers of career success, body image, popularity, good grades, a position on the team. And we keep stacking these bricks up, hoping maybe, just maybe, just maybe, they'll finally give us what we desire. They'll finally give us what we need. But the story of the Bible... The story that the Bible tells about you and me is that the brick towers we build with our own hands will always disappoint us. They always will. We were made for a different kind of greatness. We were made for a different kind of belonging, one that comes from God alone. 
One author describes this problem this way. He says, sin is fundamentally seeking those things for ourselves that can only be received from God. Sin is fundamentally seeking those things for ourselves that can only be received from God. So let me ask you this as we pause for a moment. What towers in your life are you looking to for something that only God can give? Well, let's get back to our story. How does God respond to this problem? They're doing all this. They're building this tower like, woo, look at us go. Stacking those bricks. Here we go. Look at what happens here. Just like the violence in Noah's day, God knows that this problem isn't going to solve itself. And when it becomes communal, it's not just individual. When it becomes communal, it threatens to go kind of viral amongst his people. So, God decides he's going to intervene, just like in Noah's day, but he's going to intervene in a strange and unusual way, another kind of just mercy. Look with me at verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Is God mad that they're building? Does God hate Legos and architects? No. He loves creativity in that way, right? What he's frustrated with, what he's concerned about is that he knows when one culture, when one people group wants to make their way the only way, he knows that it ends in violence and oppression and destruction. Now, I want you to notice two things right here in these verses, two things about God's response. And the first is this. The pattern we see over and over again in the scriptures is that the God of the Bible, the God we know through Jesus, is a God who comes down, a God who comes to us. Now, you know, it's almost comical in this story. I don't know if you caught the humor here, but, but look at this. These guys are building this tower. Remember, the Babylonians thought they had to climb up to the top to meet God. So the picture is the guys are over here, and they're climbing, and they're brick building. They're moving higher and higher and higher. And then all of a sudden, over here, here's God, and he's, he's come down. He's kind of down at the bottom. I was thinking about the Looney Tunes cartoons. Remember how when Elmer Fudd was always hunting Bugs Bunny, he would think he's up there. He'd be doing, 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 doing. And then all of a sudden, Bugs is standing right back behind him. <laughs> you get that picture? I think that's kind of the picture of God here. They're all, build, build, build. We got to get up there to God. And then, oh, and God's down here, right? And he says, hey, guys, what are you doing, right? What's up? God comes down to investigate what they're doing. And we see here something about the heart of God in the Bible. This idea of God coming down is a theme that's going to play out over and over and over again. And it's going to manifest most strikingly in the person of Jesus, who it is said left heaven and came down to make his home, his dwelling amongst the people. The God of the Bible is not a God who expects us to climb to him, but a God who comes down. We'll say a lot more about that in in the coming weeks. But there's a second thing I want you to see here. Because the second thing is that we discover something quite important about God's vision for humanity. You see, the Babylonians had a vision for humanity. 
their vision was called the Babylonian Empire. That's, that was their vision for humanity. King Nebuchadnezzar and all those other Babylonian leaders like him made it their aim to stomp out other cultures and other people groups. They conquered them, they oppressed them, they enslaved them, and they tried to make them all Babylonians. And they would do this through power, force, oppression, and empire. That was their vision. But what we see here is that God has a different vision for humanity. His vision is that a diversity of nations, cultures, and languages would all worship him in unity as, a, as people made in his image. See, race, ethnicity, language, and culture, these are not accidental things in our world. According to the scriptures, they are by God's design. They are part of his creation. There is something beautiful, something sacred, something of God's image that can only be captured by the, by the diversity of human faces. And we see this at two other critical times in the whole story of the Bible. The first, you probably know this, is right after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and goes back to be with his father. His followers have gathered, get this, in a kind of tower, an upper room, right? And they're gathered there and they're praying and they're waiting. They're in a city, city, tower, and then they're praying. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes. And what is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has come on them? Well, they start speaking in all these different languages. It's like a giant hyperlink back to Genesis 11. Do you see this? Look with me at what happens here in Acts 2, 4. It says that all of them, that's the Jesus followers in the upper room, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And the writer of Acts Luke tells us that people from all over the known world gathered in the city began to hear the story of Jesus in their own language. And the text says that that day thousands of them became followers of Jesus. But perhaps the greatest image of God's vision for humanity is seen in the very last book of the Bible, the book we call Revelation or the vision of John. After, he says this, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. There's the hyperlink again, right? Standing before the throne and before the lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. See, it's pointing back again to Genesis 11. Some of you who grew up in churches, kind of traditional churches, will remember an old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. We know this song, right? I remember I was a fairly new Christian. I was 19 years old, and I encountered one of the most sacred moments of my life. I, I and along with others in my college group from church, got to go to Urbana Missions Conference in St. Louis. Now, Urbana is the largest missions conference of its kind in the West. And this year, there were about 25 or 30,000 college students gathered between Christmas and New Year's to learn about what God was doing around the globe. And it was so amazing. I'd never been to anything like this before. And the worship band had people who spoke all different languages in it from all around the world. It was remarkable. And we went to sing this song, and they actually taught it to us in four languages. And we sang, oh, for a thousand tongues in English and in Spanish and in Korean and in Swahili. 
And it, it, as I stood there, it was like for the first time in my life, I got a glimpse of what the kingdom was really like. It was like I was instantly transferred back to this moment that began in Genesis 11 when God planted the seed of his vision for humanity. Now, the story doesn't end there, does it? In fact, the story goes on, and we're going to talk more about this next week, but I want to give you just a little bit of a preview. Look with me at how the next chapter begins. You see, God's vision for humanity, it all begins right there in Genesis 11, but of course it doesn't stop there, right? In the very next chapter, God is going to begin building his own tower, and he starts in a really odd place. He chooses a sterile, frail, old man named Abraham. This tower, this Abraham, will not be a demonstration of human strength, but of God's power at work in human weakness. Look with me at the first verses from chapter 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, Abraham is God's solution to the Tower of Babel. God says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give you a place to belong, and it's going to be better and more permanent than any home man can build. I'm going to give you significance, Abraham, greater than any tower. You will play a role in my story in bringing blessing to the world. And Abraham, listen, best of all, I'm going to make your name great. And I will tie your greatness of your name to my own. And one day, Abraham, all these scattered families of the earth with their new languages and their new cultures will be reunited because of what I do through you. God's building a new tower, but it's one in his strength, in his ways, and for the glory of his name. Which brings us to this question today. What are we to do with this crazy Tower of Babel story, right? Okay, Aaron, that was some really interesting stuff. I don't know, Asherahs and I don't know, East-West, really fascinating. Okay, great, Aaron, what do I do with this? Here's what you do. I think this story for you and me today is an opportunity to pause and reflect on which tower we are actually building. Are we building towers for ourselves, for our own significance, for our own namesake? Are we building Babylonian towers? Or have we surrendered to God and said, God, we want to be about building your tower by your strength and for your namesake? It's a fundamental choice that each of us must make. Who, who are we living for? Is it ourselves or is it our God? Can we pray? Father, I'm so thankful that you are a God who comes down to us. And today, as we consider this very ancient and very strange story, 
I pray that somewhere in the midst of this, we might hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us. Lord, for my friends who who are watching a tower that they've built in their life right now kind of falter or, or even crumble, I pray that they might hear in the midst of that your invitation to a different way of living. Lord, for us as a church, as as we consider who we want to be as a people, could we hear your invitation to exist not for our own namesake, but for your namesake? Not for our own kingdom, but for your kingdom. And Jesus, most of all, I pray that you might fill us with your vision for humanity. That when we encounter someone different from us, someone who looks different from us or acts different or or even votes different from us, that we might see in them the dignity of your image, that they too are part of the family of humanity that is made in the image of God. Jesus, we, we ask you to fill us again with that purpose, that significance, and that safety that can only come from you. Would you help us to trust you and follow you as you call us to step out, as you do, Abraham? We pray all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.